The California Technology Council's new CTC Benefits Trust combines groups of emerging technology companies to offer large company benefits to small businesses. This approach delivers employee benefit programs with better choices and at a lower cost. What's included? Medical, dental, and vision options are available with additional employer and employee online resources to support simplified enrollment and administration. To learn more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash join. That's californiatechnology.org forward slash join. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Among the many challenges to developing stem cell therapies is the need to match donors to recipients and the risk of graft-versus-host disease that requires the use of immunosuppressants. Atherosis has developed a stem cell therapy platform known as Multistem that makes use of a type of stem cell that doesn't carry the risk of causing an immune response. What's more, cells from a single donor can be expanded to provide potentially millions of doses to treat a wide range of conditions, making it a scalable, off-the-shelf therapy. The company is in late-stage clinical testing of its cell therapy for the treatment of ischemic stroke, a leading cause of serious disability. We spoke to Gil Van Boeklin, CEO of Atherosis, about the company's multi-stem platform, how it works, and the range of indications it's pursuing. Gil, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Atherosis, its off-the-shelf stem cell product platform, and some of your efforts to develop treatments for a variety of neurological, immune, and cardiovascular conditions. Let's start with the multi-stem platform, though. What are the cells you're using? Uh, where do you get them? And how are they being developed for therapeutic indications? Sure. So the cells that make up multi-stem are a special class of cells that we can isolate right out of bone marrow or certain other tissue sources. Um, in technical terms, they're referred to as multipotent adult progenitor cells, or MAPCs for short. And these are a class of cells that were first identified going back a few years ago that once they were isolated from various donor sources, originally focused on uh, animal models and then looking at, uh, at human donors, it was discovered that these cells have some very interesting properties. Um, specifically, it's been shown that these cells, once we isolate them from healthy consenting donors, that we can actually grow them up in enormous quantities. And that's unlike the vast majority of cell types from the human body. When you isolate cells, you really can't expand them outside the human body to any substantial degree. So these cells are wired a little bit differently. They're wired such that once we isolate them, provided we keep them in the proper conditions that we can actually grow them up in enormous quantities. And it's been demonstrated that we can administer these cells just like typo blood. So we don't have to tissue match the original donor 
to the patients that we're trying to treat. Those two characteristics in combination with one another are very powerful because that's allowed us to develop what we refer to as an off-the-shelf stem cell therapy that could be used to treat many, many patients and has shown tremendous promise in some specific areas of unmet medical need where current standard of care really is not getting it done for a lot of the patients that, uh, that need treatment. How, how much product are you actually able to create from a, a single donor? We can actually produce millions of clinical doses from a small amount of material that we get from a single healthy consenting donor. And we've shown that we can do this across many, many, many donors that we've worked with over the years. So we have a very consistent pro- pro- uh, process, but it's, uh, the, the ultimate yield of it is quite impressive because it really is way beyond what people have been able to accomplish with other cell therapy platforms or what people have done traditionally working with um, things like uh, bone marrow transplantation procedures or hematopoietic stem cell procedures where for every one patient you want to treat, you have to go find a a tissue-matched donor. And in our case, um, as I mentioned, we don't have to do that. We have a tremendous yield that allows us to produce the equivalent of millions or even potentially tens of millions of doses from one donor bank. And we can make multiple donor banks, so it gives us a tremendous amount of supply, if you will, to be able to treat a lot of patients that need help. Given the scalability of the platform, given the fact that you don't need to match patients or immunosuppress people who receive the therapy, are there economic consequences of that? Well, the scalability of it is a big advantage. And the the economic consequences, I would say, are that it's, it, it enables us to actually deliver a therapy across the indications that we're focused on and do it in a much more economically, uh, you know, much more economically efficient way. Um, so the, the key is, is that because we can use large-scale technologies to produce these when we go into commercialization mode, then that really changes the economics of it and makes it a much more efficient platform and makes it much more consistent and much more scalable. So if you think about some of the recent technologies that have been developed, well, I'll start by actually going back to kind of the origin of stem cell transplantation clinically, which began with that process to treat uh, patients that were being treated for leukemia or lymphoma or similar types of conditions. And for every one patient you wanted to treat, you had to go out and find a matched donor. And sometimes that matching process could be very, very challenging it's not always easy to find an appropriately matched donor. But even when you isolate the cells from the, the donor, if you find a good match, it's, a, it's an expensive and cumbersome process to actually isolate those cells and then use them for treatment. And it's not very scalable because, again, for every one patient you want to treat, you've got to go out and find a, a matched donor. Some of the more recently developed technologies that are quite exciting, so things like CAR-T for treating patients that have various types of malignancies, they are, again, an example of taking, the, taking cells, in this case, from the individual patient, rewiring them um, to make them more adept at and more specific at killing tumor cells, and then using that immunotherapy as a way to treat the patient. The unfortunate reality of CAR-T technology, though, is, is that it's not very scalable. It's not very economical, at least in its current form today. 
And so that's why we've seen price points that are typically in the hundreds of thousands of dollars um, just to treat an individual patient. With scalable technologies like multi-stem, I think we can deliver something that's going to be much more uh, cost-effective and cost-efficient and also can reach many more patients by virtue of the fact that it is so scalable. How is the product administered to a patient, and is it the expectation that this would be a a one-time administration or would be people treated with repeating doses? Well, I'll start with the second question first. So the... for most of the indications that we're focused on that are in the critical care spectrum, so things like stroke or for uh, trauma or for acute respiratory distress syndrome or certain other indications that we're focused on, we envision that this will be uh, primarily a, a, one, a one-dose treatment, which is how we've been conducting our clinical trials, is to give one dose early on after the original event and then evaluate how effective that is. And we've seen very good safety data from the clinical trials that we've run, and we've also seen very promising efficacy in terms of helping patients get better, even after a single dose of therapy. But for, and and the way that we administer the product is to administer it intravenously for most indications. So we've developed a true off-the-shelf formulation where you can go from the vial that the stem cells are in into an IV bag, which can be administered uh, just literally hanging it on an IV stand and administered to the patient intravenously in a procedure that takes just a few minutes, we can, um, we can actually do that very efficiently. Um, and it's, it's very easy to do. It's not very cumbersome. It's not terribly complicated. It's basically doing things that pharmacists or nurses or, or other people that would be responsible for preparing the product are, are very familiar with and very comfortable with. So again, IV administration, typically a single dose for most of the indications we're focused on. However, we do recognize that for certain complex disease indications, more than one dose might be necessary to maximize the therapeutic benefit or might be necessary to really help the patient get back to where you want them to be. So we're very open to, in in fact, exploring indications where multiple doses over time might be required but the primary focus right now is on treating some of these critical care indications um, early on, hoping to get the patient back on the path to recovery in a way that current standard of care really doesn't typically deliver for the patients that need help. And what do these cells actually do once they're inside the body? Yeah, it's a great question. We, we get it quite a lot. And the, the interesting thing about these cells is, they, in contrast to a traditional pharmaceutical drug or a biotechnology drug, whether it be an antibody or a peptide or uh, something along those lines, all of those types of therapies are designed to do something, one thing very, very specifically uh, in, in the vast majority of cases. But with the cells that make up multi-stem, they're dynamic living entities. And we've shown in many, many studies, in fact, we have dozens of publications that have been produced in, in uh, leading peer-reviewed journals that show that these cells act through multiple distinct mechanisms in parallel. They show an amazing propensity to home to sites of tissue damage and inflammation and injury or key organ systems that are very important in governing the healing response or governing the biological response after something bad happens. And I'll, I'll give you one good example of that in just a minute. So, the, the short answer is these cells don't just do one thing. They actually do a series of different things. 
one of the key things that they do is when the body sustains a serious event or a serious injury, one of the common reactions to that is, is that it, it ramps up the immune system and the inflammatory system. That can be very counterproductive following a stroke or following some of the other events that I mentioned earlier, trauma, for example, or in the case of patients that have acute respiratory distress where their lungs are filled with immune cells that are creating a very inflammatory environment, and that compromises pulmonary function, and that's why these ARDS patients ultimately have to go on a ventilator. So one of the things that we know about multistem is is that if we administer the product intravenously in those types of situations, the cells will actually react in a very powerful way, and they will reduce that inflammatory-mediated response or damage that might be occurring, and it's kind of like restoring balance to the immune system, but doing it in a very, very um, uh, profound way, if you will, to kind of get the body back to where you want it to be. But at the same time, these cells have shown that they can upregulate key reparative mechanisms and help the body recover in other ways. So, for example, in stroke or in neurological injury situations, we know that these cells stimulate neuroreparative pathways, so neurotrophic or neurogenic uh, pathways, or they stimulate um, cell types that are very responsible or very uh, powerful in terms of promoting healing and repair. So, for example, uh, when most people think about the immune system, they, they recognize that there's this inflammatory uh, part of it, which, I'll, again, I'll come back to that in just a minute, but until a few years ago, we didn't recognize that there was also a whole other dimension to the immune system, which is reparative in nature. And it consists of interesting cell types that have been discovered in recent years, like regulatory T cells and M2 macrophages and other cell types. We know that what multistem does is it stimulates those cells and key pathways that actually help the body recover in some very important ways. Um, and again, we know that these cells stimulate other key pathways uh, in response to, for example, neurological injury or in the case of ischemic injury where these cells can express or induce expression of factors that actually help promote formation of new blood vessels to kind of get the body back to, to where it wants to be. Um, one of the key things that we found in the inflammatory cascade is the importance of another organ in the body called the spleen. And our spleen, for the most part, I think has been kind of an underappreciated organ uh, in, in terms of the clinical focus for many, many years, although we've known for a long time that if somebody had a ruptured spleen that had to be surgically removed, uh, what we would refer to as a splenectomy, or if there, was, if there were other problems, like the spleen was abnormally enlarged, um, we've known that when the spleen is removed for those patients, that the patient is going to be immunodepressed for or immunocompromised for the rest of their life. But we didn't really know why. And it turns out that the spleen is a central hub for immune system function. And at any given point in time, it's filled with immune cells that are sitting in the spleen, not really doing anything. They're waiting for a signal or a set of signals that we hope never get sent. But if we sustain a stroke or if we sustain a trauma or, uh, or other things that can trigger the peripheral immune system, it actually causes through a cascade of signals uh, that go to the spleen, it causes these immune cells to become activated and inflammatory, and then within a couple of days, they're leaving the, 
the spleen, in, in the case of a stroke, they're leaving the, sp- the, the spleen, they go into the circulatory system, and then they go up to the brain where they, caught a, uh, they create a hostile inflammatory environment that, um, that frankly expands the region of damage in the brain and makes it virtually impossible to recover um, from that extended damage once it has occurred. But one of the very interesting things we know about multistem is, is that when we administer the cells intravenously, um, once this cascade has been activated, a lot of the cells go right to the spleen. And when they get there, provided we treat the patient within the appropriate time frame, which we've shown for stroke is within 36 hours or less, then the multistem cells actually calm the immune system down. And they restore balance, what immunologists refer to as immunological homeostasis. And, uh, and basically, they're turning off that hyperinflammatory cascade at the same time that these cells are actually turning up key healing and reparative processes. So it's kind of a combination of things that these cells are doing that we believe can really help the patient. And the, the clinical data that's been generated based on some of the studies we've run I think really provides a lot of support for that and is quite exciting. I want to talk a little bit more about your experience in treating stroke with this, but before we do, how broad is the potential for the use of these cells, and does the therapy need to be customized in any way for a particular indication, or can you just systemically deliver them and they'll provide the benefit as needed? Yeah, for most indications, there is no customization required. We don't have to genetically modify these cells. We don't have to do anything um, terribly uh, significant to them. We just have to maintain them in the in the proper conditions. And when we're manufacturing them, we have to make sure that we're that we're treating them the right way, so that we can uh, produce the quantities of the cells we want, so that they have the the potency that we need, and all the other things that we need in order to make it an effective and safe therapy. Um, so again, no no customization, no special, uh, no genetic modifications or anything else that would be cumbersome or potentially problematic in terms of uh, what has been seen with some other approaches that, that people have used. Um, the so so I think that um, in terms of the breadth of how these cells might actually where they might be relevant, quite honestly, they appear to have broad relevance in a lot of different indications. We certainly can't say that they're going to be relevant to everything, but we've done work in many, many different disease and injury models that has shown that once we administer these cells, when uh, when something bad happens, and, and we focused a lot in recent years on acute injury or acute disease conditions. So again, things like stroke or things like acute respiratory distress when patients have been placed on a ventilator because their lungs become so inflamed and so compromised that they just can't get enough oxygen, and that's really the only way to keep them alive is to put them on a ventilator. Um, Some of the other programs where we've done work as well. So for now, we're focusing primarily on the critical care indications where current standard of medical care is in many instances very limited, or in some cases, there's really not much you can do for the patient at all other than provide palliative care. And we believe that we might be able to change that in a pretty significant way in areas like ischemic stroke, but also we have some exciting early data in hemorrhagic stroke um, based on our clinical data for ARDS as well uh, and some of the other programs that we've advanced. I understand you're, you're pursuing cases of acute injury, but do you know anything about the cell's potential 
in terms of damage that's done to the body from a progressive disease? Does it have restorative abilities in that regard? Yeah, and we, we have looked at various indications where there are progressive disease indications, and definitely the, the cells have shown great promise there in some of the situations that we've looked at. Um, but I think that while those are definitely areas of opportunity and areas of substantial unmet medical need, one of the nice things about working on the acute and critical care indications that we predominantly focused on in, in recent years is that we can get a pretty good indication fairly quickly about whether or not the therapy is working, whether or not it's actually helping patients. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so right now, our most advanced program is in a phase three clinical trial for treating patients that have suffered an ischemic stroke. And the longstanding standard of care for treating stroke is a drug that was developed by Genentech going back more than 20 years ago, a drug called TPA. And the, the purpose of administering TPA is to try and dissolve the clot that has caused the stroke. The problem with TPA is you've got to administer it to patients within the first several hours after the stroke has occurred. And you really shouldn't give it after that time because the longer you wait, the higher the risk of causing a substantial bleeding event in the brain um, becomes. And so for that reason, the FDA and other regulators have said, look, you can only give it in the first several hours, and you really shouldn't give it beyond that point. Um, more recently, there have been surgical techniques that have been developed, but those are limited to a relatively small percentage of patients because the stroke has to be in a specific part of the brain. And again, you have to do it within a fairly narrow window of time. What we've shown with multi-stem is, is that we can administer it up to 36 hours after a stroke has occurred, which is a time frame that we believe could be relevant to 90 to 95% of all stroke patients. And the, the, the nice uh, thing about that in, in addition to it is, is that when we run these types of clinical trials, we can usually see within a few months, in some cases within a few weeks, whether or not patients are getting better following the treatment. Now, we always run randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials. That's what we tend to focus on. Um, but the reality of it is, is that the standard clinical endpoint for running a stroke trial is 90 days with a one-year follow-up. And in our phase two data, we saw that by 90 days, there was pretty consistent evidence of the fact that patients that were getting treated with multi-stem within that 36-hour window, that they were recovering much better and, frankly, much faster than patients who were being treated with best available standard of care. And the data got even better by the time we went out to one year. So in contrast with some of the uh, chronic um, disease conditions where you may have to actually follow patients for, um, for a much longer time frame. You know, a disease like Alzheimer's would be a good example. Typically, you're not going to be able to see any kind of signal of efficacy within a few months or even within a one-year time frame. It's going to take a much longer study, and it's going to involve a lot of patients um, to be able to really detect a, a you know, significant treatment effect. In our case, we can actually do it with a much more modest number of patients, and we can do it in a much shorter time frame. So that makes it very efficient from an overall development perspective. Same thing for, with another one of our clinical programs where we just recently presented at one of the major clinical conferences some very exciting data for treating patients that have been diagnosed with acute respiratory distress syndrome. So these are patients that maybe they've contracted a pulmonary uh, infection or pneumonia, 
or, um, or it might be trauma-induced um, acute respiratory distress syndrome. But these are patients where their lungs become inflamed, they, the lungs fill up with fluid, and then the only way to keep the patient alive is to put them on a ventilator. And um, what we were able to show, and we evaluated patients for the standard kind of clinical window, which is about a month long, it's 28 days long, we showed that when we treated patients within the first several days after they'd been placed on a ventilator, that we were seeing very exciting evidence that showed that these patients were, they had uh, meaningfully lower mortality, they had meaningfully uh, um, better recoveries with, with uh, more ventilator-free days and more ICU-free days within that 28-day period. So we were seeing a very consistent pattern, which was also supported by the biomarker evidence that we generated from the study. So again, these are two good examples where we can get a pretty good answer within a few weeks to several months about whether or not the administration of the therapy is working. And so because of the biological evidence and the clinical data that we've generated that gives us a lot of confidence that we can make a big difference in critical care indications, and because we can actually see these effects uh, in, a, in a more efficient manner, if you will, from a clinical trial perspective, um, that's why we've really focused predominantly on those indications. But, it, but that doesn't mean that we're not interested in some of the chronic indications. We're just really pretty heavily focused on the critical care indications right now because that seems to make the most sense for, for what we're trying to do. In the case of stroke, does the clot have to be dissolved or removed before you can treat with multistem? No. In fact, what we saw was um, either for patients that had gotten to the hospital in time to get treated with TPA, but it didn't work, or for patients that had undergone thrombectomy, but it didn't work, because that, that's another point is, is that most people don't realize that the, um, the majority of patients that get TPA or that undergo thrombectomy actually don't see meaningful benefit from it. And that's because the clot doesn't always resolve or you can't always remove the clot. But in our case, we looked at patients that underwent treatment with TPA uh, or treatment with thrombectomy, as well as patients that didn't get, in the ho- didn't get to the hospital in time to get either of those therapeutic interventions. And what we saw was very consistent benefit in both groups. So in answer to your question, no, we, we, we can give this to virtually, we can layer it right on top of standard of care. We can give this, we believe, to the vast majority of patients that are out there. And, um, and in particular, those patients that have had fairly meaningful, um, you know, what's referred to as moderately significant to uh, severe disability, those are the patients that we think we can really help the most. And does the clot in those cases just resolve on its own, or does new vascular growth work around it? Well, it, it's, there are cases where the clot actually resolves on its own. Those cases are referred to as uh, TIAs, or transient ischemic attacks. There are other cases where patients may experience what's referred to as a focal stroke, where they might get a tiny blockage in a small artery. It might be in a really important part of the brain, but, um, but then the body is able to upregulate compensatory blood flow in the vessels around where that, that blockage occurred. Um, and in those cases, you see patients that actually tend to bounce back um, within the first day or so of, uh, of when the event occurred. Um, we have focused our efforts on not on the patients that where you're seeing a, go- a good resolution, either because they had a TIA or they had a focal stroke, We've actually intentionally focused on the patients 
that weren't bouncing back. So the really challenging cases, the ones that nobody could really help with current standard of care because the interventions either didn't apply to those patients or they didn't work on those patients. So we've really focused on the more difficult and challenging cases, and that's why it's so exciting that we've seen the benefits that we've seen, um, both in the preclinical work that we've done, but also in the, in the clinical work that we've done. And that's what's led to um, special designations from the FDA and other regulators around the world. So we're one of the only cell therapy companies out there that has three fast-track designations from the FDA um, for our multi-stem platform. And that's pretty exciting, and I think it's a good indication that the regulators respect how we're approaching the clinical development. They're really trying to help us because they see that our technology could have tremendous potential in some very challenging and problematic areas of clinical medicine. I think of a lot of damage in stroke coming from reperfusion injuries. I, I imagine this therapy goes right at that. Is that the case? Yeah, well, we've actually generated some pretty exciting data that shows that in reperfusion injury situations that these cells can provide meaningful benefits. And, um, and again, it's not just one thing that's that the cells are doing. It's a whole series of things that they're doing. And that's one of the powers of what we refer to as um, they're kind of like living drug factories. Um, they're not actually making drugs per se. They're producing biological substances um, that have very important therapeutic consequences and that help the body compensate better or help the body recover in some very powerful ways. But the, the interesting thing, you know, stroke's been a very challenging area for a long, long time since TPA was approved over 20 years ago. But pretty much all of the things that people have tried since then have been single-agent therapeutic approaches, either neuroprotectants or next-generation clot-dissolving agents or what are referred to as thrombolytics. Um, in, in our case, we know, and, and, and those things have really not worked out the way that people had hoped. Um, in our case, you know, we're doing something that is fundamentally different, that when we administer these cells, again, their homing properties actually change depending on the underlying nature of the injury or what's going on in the body. We've seen that in, in many studies that we've run. And we know that these cells can actually react in a dynamically responsive way to help the body and the patient recover. And that's pretty exciting because it means that it could be a, a pretty significant step forward or leap forward in clinical medicine, adding another tool to the arsenal that really hasn't been available until now. And I think it's one of the reasons why more and more people are recognizing the potential of cell therapy generally and why we're seeing such momentum in the space. You mentioned the FDA designations a moment ago. The phase three studies being conducted under a special protocol assessment what does that mean in terms of the regulatory path forward for you? And if all goes well, when might you file for a regulatory approval? So it's a little bit too early to give formal guidance on when we might file for approval, but our, our goal is to um, complete enrollment in our ongoing Phase three study by around the end of next year. And in terms of the special protocol assessment and the designations that we've gotten from the FDA and, and uh, other designations from other regulators around the world, these are designed to really create a clearer, more efficient, faster path to the finish line. So fast-track designation is exactly what it sounds like. It's basically where the, the FDA um, has, has uh, provided a designation that says that, hey, that in their perspective that they believe that the therapy has potential to treat a serious 
indication or area of unmet medical need, and, the, and it's designed to speed up the regulatory review process, make it easier to file your admission and your application for approval, um, and do other things along the way, like engage in the FDA to have conversations about things um, that may have to be dealt with just along the way as you're working to get to the finish line uh, in terms of completing your clinical development and then applying for approval. So the SPA in particular is meant to be a structured framework um, that says, okay, if we do the following things and if our trial is successful, then that provides the basis for a potential approval by the FDA. And that's a pretty important step. And so the fact that that we were given um, fast track, that we also received something called RMAT designation, which is essentially the equivalent of breakthrough therapy designation for cell therapy products, and the fact that we have an SBA for this program, I think are all pretty positive indicators that say, you know what, the regulators are on board. They're really working with us in, a, in an appropriate, practical, and pragmatic way to help us achieve success. And that's pretty exciting. I think a lot of times regulators get uh, a bad rap, if you will, because many people try to characterize the FDA or other regulatory agencies as the problem that stands in their way. Um, from getting new therapies developed. And, you know, my experiences and our experience as a company and many of the people that we work with is, is the complete opposite. The FDA wants, just like we do, they want safer, more effective therapies to be developed and available to patients that need help. And, in fact, their job is to make sure that people are actively working towards developing those therapies, but they're doing it in an appropriate way that, first and foremost, is designed to ensure the safety and well-being of people that are participating in clinical trials and ultimately patients for which the, the therapies are approved. Um, so I'm actually very proud of the fact that we have a strong relationship with the FDA and, and other key regulatory agencies around the world in Europe and Japan and other parts of the world as well. Um, and I'm also very proud of the fact that we, we view them uh, we work with them and we interact with them in a collaborative, collegial way. And I think that's really the way that most companies, uh, if not all companies, should approach it, um, is to you know, not view them as the hurdle or the obstacle, but really kind of work with them in a constructive manner. Gil Van Bokelen, founder, chairman, and CEO of Athersis. Gil, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.